The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Welcome to Big Technology Podcast Friday Edition, where we break down the news in our traditional cool-headed and nuanced format. We have a great show for you today. There's an unbelievable preview of Apple's mixed reality device out that we're going to discuss first. Then we're going to be talking about whether there's an AI bubble with stocks like NVIDIA going through the roof. Then OpenAI ends up in Washington with Sam Altman testifying before Congress. What can we really learn from that? And after the break, we're going to cover the TikTok ban in Montana. How long is that going to last? And Sheehan or Shine. Ranjan, is it Shine? It is Sheehan. And this is going to be the most important story of the week. So stick around and you'll all learn how to pronounce the most important company to watch in American tech. Let's start this week talking about how Apple's mixed reality device might not go according to plans. So there is a terrific, terrific story. I'm amazed that it's not getting more play this week by Mark Gurman in Bloomberg talking about the shortcomings of this device. Uh, let me just kind of run through them pretty quickly. It is uh, something that Apple expects to sell a lot fewer devices than it did previously. Three million uh, expected, but now it really expects 900,000 units. It has many non-Apple features, big bulky pieces of hardware that just is not very traditional with Apple. We have a, There's a former Apple marketing executive saying that it could be one of the great tech flops of all time. And um, it is very different from what the company originally envisioned, making it seem like they're just going to try to ship something versus, uh, you know, build until it's perfect. Do like cut measure twice, cut once, which is the way that Apple typically builds. So very, very interesting article. Now I really can't wait for Apple to release this thing. Ranjan, what's your perspective here? Do you think that, I mean, for German to come out and say that this thing, you know, is not going to be what was expected. It's a pretty big deal. Yeah, but okay, the most interesting part of the article for me was he writes, Apple's ambition is that customers will eventually wear the device continuously all day, replacing daily tasks done on an iPhone or a Mac, such as playing games, browsing the web, emailing, doing FaceTime video calls, and on and on. It's the idea that this is supposed to become the new iPhone. This is supposed to be your primary computing device. That worries me a little bit. That feels a little am overly ambitious. And I think one of the biggest problems I've had with the way Facebook slash Meta approached the, approached the metaverse was it was an incredible gaming technology, VR headsets, and trying to you know force feed it into your everyday life because that's a better total addressable market rather than really evolving it as a gaming device and then seeing where it goes, I think it was a huge mistake. So I think Apple, if the goal really is to try to match the iPhone rather than make it the watch or AirPods and an accessory, I think that's gonna be a huge problem. And a huge problem is where it's gone. So there's some conflicting reports because Palmer Lucky, a friend of the podcast, has tried these glasses and said this week that he thinks they're amazing. And maybe they are in terms of the current category, right? But you have to think about what Apple was trying to do and where they landed. And this is a passage from the story. So 
Gerben says after initially setting its sights on a lightweight pair of augmented reality glasses, Apple gradually drifted towards something that felt more like existing devices because of technological constraints and the desire to get the product on the market. Oh, and internal disagreements. So here's what that points to to me. First of all, what makes Apple Apple is that it's able to imagine the future and build that future, right? Even when the, technolo when the technology says it's impossible. Remember when they introduced the iPhone? Steve Jobs said what? This is years ahead of the nearest competitors, and it was because while other competitors were dealing with inferior devices, Apple pushed forward and built something that changed the game. And this seems like an also-rand. And then you talk about the internal disagreements, right? What's going on culturally inside this company? And the last thing is, and this is probably the most you know, the most concerning of the entire statement, is that the desire to get the product on the market led it led the company to basically put out something that is not what it hoped initially. That's just not what Apple does. It doesn't yeah, the, rush the, things out to market, and the, it's doing the, that. This had me thinking a lot, and I am someone who waited in line for four hours for the first iPhone. I've been a longtime Apple fanboy. Um, but the last few years, it's definitely felt innovation is incremental rather than, rather than transformative. You know, every additional iPhone has gotten less and less exciting. Uh, you know, your new watches are a little bit better. So it'll be a huge challenge to see, you know, can this really be that transformative? But, but I do think like, you know, now when we look back, that first iPhone was a game changer, but at the time I was made fun of because it didn't have copy and paste in the text by people at work. Like mm -hmm. a lot of people said it was ridiculous to wait in line and spend that much money on a device for a phone. Cause the idea of like a smartphone as a computing device didn't even really make sense to most people at the time. So so I think casting it out that easily, it still is Apple. And especially if it fits into their ecosystem, because again, I switched from Amazon Echoes to the HomePods and it just works and it's not even perfect. It's far from perfect, but now my smart home, I can talk to from my watch and my phone and, and the whole ecosystem still is where Apple wins. So how well they integrate this device and bring in a new form of computing into that ecosystem, I still think they're better positioned than anyone else. I'm not buying it, all right? I mean, when Steve Jobs came on stage and introduced that iPhone, you know, internet machine, a phone and browser a phone and an ipod together yeah okay and that, look watching that i remember i remember it's one it's the only technology announcement that i remember where i was and i'm not a gadget guy okay so i'll say that in the beginning i remember where i was and it was clear that this was going to change the game they had so many cool features and those people that were saying well it doesn't copy and paste they were haters <laughs> okay and and Frankly, you know, there's going to be people that will find the problem with everything. And that's where they were. But and, and I don't know, I, I think that it was clear on that day that this was something that was pretty transformative. This device does not look revolutionary. It looks evolutionary. And I'm, I'm willing to admit if I'm proven wrong, I'll be proven wrong. But I had never seen a story like this about Apple in the Tim Cook era or in the Jobs era where the company That's... is working towards this major, major, major device that it thinks could be the next era of computing. And there are all these concerns about it. Now, if they pull it off, credit to them. 
right? They've been they, and they've been doing some things, right? Their their internal chips, the ones they've designed, the M1 and M2, are amazing. I mean, I'm recording this on a laptop with one of those chips, and man, it's better than anything I've ever used. The laptops work well, the phones work well, but it's an inability to make that next transformative product is going to look disastrous if this flops. And it is a legacy thing for Tim Cook. Yeah, yeah, but but this think about the watch, not the iPhone. When the Apple Watch came out, it was supposed to be this luxury product. Remember, they had the gold-plated one, right, Johnny right, Ive. Right. It, mm-hmm. it, it was a watch. It was not a health monitoring device or a fitness tracker. And that's an example where Apple showed they can create a killer product by one actually you know evolving it to meet the ways consumers are using it and the what consumers were demanding and two just making it you know vital to their ecosystem and again i have a watch i have the iphone i i for a couple of years i left i got a pixel i got a wow. surface i mm. tried to leave and then i came you just back. can handle being a green bubble right it's just easier it's just easier actually i remember yeah. at the time uh, I was married at the time and one of my friends who was single, I was telling him how good the pixel was. And he's like, I'm sorry, man. I just can't, I can't text someone with a green bubble when I'm trying oh, yeah. to date. That's, That's the, kiss the, of death. The, the kiss of death. So <laughs> it is, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's the ecosystem. And, and, and again, and we talked about this the other week with Brian from tech meme, like for me, the magic leap was still one of the coolest technology experiences I've ever had. So, and, and, and it's almost been disappointing for me. And like, why has that technology not taken off? And I actually think of, cause I ascribe everything to Zerp. I think like overfunding and just overhype around the magic leap is what led to their demise. HoloLens with, from Microsoft, from people I know who used it, you know, they talked about how amazing it was. And that kind of got sucked into Microsoft corporate politics when that company was going through a lot of change. Um, that technology is waiting to be released into the world and made you know into everyday use. So, so I'm pro headset. Uh, we'll First we can all, take the opposite yeah, sides of the no, bed on I, this one. I again have to disagree with you. I think the problem with Magic Leap wasn't that um, it was overhyped and overfunded. The problem was that they never released a consumer device. And I mean, they did. They eventually released something, but it was expensive. It didn't work very well, and they pivoted to enterprise. And the reason why they pivoted to enterprise is because it just was not convenient to wear those glasses and the pack around as a consumer. That's where the opportunity is for Apple. It's to build something for consumers, to push the envelope forward on technology and create that pair of glasses that you could wear that has this these capabilities inside that no longer forces you through the constraints that you used to be with in, with other technology. And I think the company's inability to do that, right, and they're, the fact that they're going to ship something that doesn't meet that bar that they set originally because they need to ship something. Whew, whew. I'll, I'll agree. Is, if there, yeah. what, One part of the report said, like, you might have to have a battery pack that's, like, attached to you, which is kind of how the Magic Leap was. You had a pack that you would kind of clip to your belt. If that's the case, <laughs> yeah. this is not, not going to work. Maybe, though. And, and then maybe Snap Spectacles come out of nowhere and... Uh, and, and take over and assume their rightful place as the augmented reality kings. Maybe, maybe. But yeah, I, uh, I think yeah. if there's like a battery pack, if it's not really a cool product, it's imagine, not gonna do- Imagine your single friend who couldn't bear 
to be a green text showing up to a date with Apple glasses and a battery pack. See ya. Okay. The new the Google Glass 2023. Here we are. Gone. So anyway, we'll see what happens. Look, I know that there's, there's a lot of people who are uh, big fans of Apple that listen to the show. Obviously, it's a very impressive company. And it would be unfair to judge the company on one product release. And we haven't even seen it yet. So this is clearly speculation and maybe they're going to do a good job with it but if they don't it's going to be a problem for them and uh it won't, won't, it won't necessarily diminish what apple is but it could lead to a narrative shift and that would be interesting so anyway apple good company potentially you know shaky launch coming up and look ranjan here's the thing if they go ahead and launch this and it's great then i will come here on the show and i will admit that i was wrong i just don't think i'm going to be all right. <laughs> Let's wait for that. <laughs> Speaking of overfunding, the AI stocks this year are ripping. Anything that's touching AI is just basically going through the moon right now. And we like to talk about bubbles here. And there's some talk now, maybe on the stock market, that we are going through a bubble. And front and center is NVIDIA, which is up 116.93% year to date. 116%. I mean, is NVIDIA, this is sort of the questions we were asking in the zero interest world. Is NVIDIA today double the company that it was when we started the year? Double the company? I kind of doubt it. What do you think? Yeah, I think stock market valuations, who's going to win? The hype around it is very problematic because we have no idea what the business models are going to be. And we've talked about that a lot on this show that, you know, right now, a, every chat GPT query is a money suck. OpenAI loses tons and tons of money. They've had to kind of like use financial whiz bangery with Microsoft around a quote unquote billion dollar and then $10 billion investment. When in reality, it's just using cloud credits and who knows what revenue is be, being recognized where, but like no one knows what the business model around any of this will be around the hardware side of it, around the software side of it, around the services side of it. And I think like, you know, the last week we had talked about uh, the, or maybe it was a couple weeks ago, open source versus big tech. Could open source even come out of this as a winner, which would completely eviscerate a lot of the investment theses around this. So, so I think everyone, because all you have to do is say AI and investors come rushing in and probably AI algorithms are driving those investment decisions anyway from quantitative hedge funds. But I think uh, it's way too early to make these kind of giant bets if people are really trying to figure out who's going to win and who's not. Yeah. So here's the argument for why we're not in a bubble. I was watching CNBC this week. Scott Wapner had the whole crew on. Josh Brown was making the argument that we were in a bubble, by the way, um, yeah, I think it's definitely a little bit of a bubble going on looking at that NVIDIA number. But Scott put up a chart and I was like, well, okay, let's really be thoughtful about this. So these were the forward PE ratios in the early 2000, 2000s. So Qualcomm was at 192 times uh, on, on the multiple. Yahoo had a multiple of 739. Cisco had a multiple of 134. Okay, here's the multiples today. Apple, Alphabet's at 22, Microsoft's at 31, NVIDIA, for all we've talked about, 63.7, Meta's at 19, and Amazon's at 76. 
So even if there is a slight bubble going on, maybe the market is just being restrained enough that it's not getting too carried away. I I just had to Google, and I did not know this off the top of my head, Yahoo's peak market cap in 1999 was $90 billion. Come on. Amazon is what one still a trillion metas, 800 yeah. billion alphabets, 1.4 trillion Mike, you know, like these are gigantic companies. So obviously a Ford PE ratio is still kind of extrapolating out future growth. So their growth will never be comparable to, you know, uh, those, at least the potential back in 1999 for a Yahoo or a Cisco, which were still thoroughly overvalued, but not that you know, on a relative basis, not that overvalued. But I, I, I think it's it's fair in the sense that right now it appears big technology companies are positioned to just kind of squeeze everyone else out and dominate. The computing costs are so high, the resources needed are so high, they have the existing ecosystems to deploy any kind of new apps and services. So I think signs are pointing to these are the places to be. And again, like whatever that says about the economy as a whole is not necessarily great, but that they are that they're positioned well. But but I still think like, I don't know, it's still so early in this that I think and maybe lo and behold, there's a new player that comes out that we weren't expecting in this, which would be kind of exciting. Well, the one that you could say is already that that new player is OpenAI, right, which has I wouldn't say come out of nowhere, but certainly increased its profile to the point where Sam Altman showed up in Washington this week to testify about safe regulation of artificial intelligence. Uh, Congress is obviously taking, and Washington and regulators around the world, I know we have an international audience, so we're not going to make this completely U.S.-centric, right? This is something that governments around the world are worried about, that AI is going to come in and do some things that are quite damaging. And... We're already seeing some big bodies out here trying to figure out what exactly to do. So Altman goes in to Washington. I found a few things notable. First of all, this is the person they're asking. It's the person who's leading industry. It's interesting. I mean, it does seem like if Sam is the one that's leading the regulation conversation, then aren't we just setting ourselves up for regulatory capture uh, where the rules are set in a way that favors the incumbents and ices out those other new entrants that we might expect? And the second thing here is, man, like I feel like deja vu really in some ways where we spent five years or something like that talking about the potential to regulate Meta and Amazon and Apple and Microsoft. All of Congress agreed on it. There were actual common sense rules that you could put into place and they did nothing. So why is something going to happen here? Yeah, I, I am definitely in terms from like a legislative standpoint, I'm not thoroughly optimistic, but I think it's good that these conversations are starting right now. But I also agree that the fact that it's Sam Altman up there, I don't think is necessarily the best thing. Now, I am genuinely confused as to what exactly OpenAI and Sam Altman are trying to do. Like, is this just some, you know, long-term regulatory capture strategy? Because what kind of regulation they're actually looking for. I never understand this argument that comes from so much of, you know, the biggest, most influential people within AI is the idea that AI could kill us all, that there's these <laughs> great societal right. harms, yet we're going to continue working on it and pushing, you know, wholeheartedly into it. And it's going to be the greatest business opportunity. And we want to be regulated to this existential, uh, around this existential threat. But 
we don't know anything past that and you know we don't want to stifle innovation so i'm i'm genuinely confused as to what is happening what they're trying to do here and what's happening here well here's one one theory which might be that sam altman just enjoys being the center of attention and you know one of the interesting things that came out of the hearing was that he said he has no equity in the company and just kind of makes enough money to buy his own health insurance and loves what he's doing and is it crazy to think that Sam might just be like that unicorn type person who's just like not, man, I can't even believe I'm saying this, but not doing like evil genius ways to like 4D chess the Congress into not regulating his company, but might actually just kind of enjoy working on this transformative technology and enjoy being the center of attention. And that explains everything. Uh, Alex can see on the the video stream the smile across my face <laughs> right now. I, I there are moments. So so one him saying he has no equity in the company blew me away. Um, two this idea that basically there's no salary. The, the, you know he's already rich, so he has enough money that he does not need anything out of this is a really interesting twist. As if it is completely confirmed. Um, which I'm not sure it's everything is still based on what has been publicly stated, not any kind of actual documentation. Um, but yeah, I think, but if, if that were really the case, wouldn't he go up and comfortably say, you know, we trained and stole the work off of like tens of millions of people. And I know that could be problematic. So maybe you'll have to sue the hell out of us for copyright infringement, or that's a real issue. You know, like I, we know that, disinformation will be created be, no no i mean if, he wants to if keep that's working what, on things you know that's well, no, he thing. has no equity he has no equity in this well that's what i'm saying that maybe it's just the pursuit of the work and that would inhibit to create the, work. the to create the genuinely equitable uh utopian future that maybe he's looking for then that's where we should start because it's like rather than talking about robots killing us all there's very real problems that are already happening today that could be addressed and are, are going to have to be addressed at some point. I think copyright to me is one of the most tangible, concrete things that is going to, we're going to, there's going to be a test case. There's going to be some kind of ruling around this, there's some kind of precedent. I think section 230 has to be part of this conversation because again, what is new content? What is original content by definition? You know, every one of these large language models creates new content. Of course, they're, you know, synthesizing existing stuff out there on the internet, but it's new content. So who's liable? This stuff is going to have to be addressed. And I think like trying to take a proactive stance and say like, you know, maybe when you, if you want to regulate us, let's actually talk regulation, not just theoretical. Okay. So I'm actually going to point you to a piece of concrete stuff they did actually talk about. And it wasn't all we're going to be turned into paper clips, but there was this discussion of something that seems a little bit like an FDA for AI. So here's uh, from the New York Times, um, echoing an idea suggested by Dr. Marcus, which is, of course, a friend of the podcast, Gary Marcus, he, which is Sam Altman, proposed the creation of an agency that issues licenses for the development of large scale AI models, safety regulations and tests that the AI models must pass before being released to the public. Okay, so that's actually, people have said this is an interesting uh, approach where people get licensed effectively to build AI. That's the part where I, you know, I heard that and it was just like, okay, wait a second. Maybe this optimistic take I had about like what open AI might be doing might be completely wrong. Because 
that FDA for AI, however common sense it seems, um, A, I don't think it addresses a current problem where like the AI is going to turn us all into paper clips. Like that's not happening right now. And B, like who does that benefit? Mm, you know, it benefits the incumbents and it benefits open AI. Yeah, the the idea of, you know, who has the resources to do a full audit on existing models, even the people, though they have the biggest models, it would still be companies like OpenAI, Google, whoever else. So yeah, I agree that definitely would push towards benefiting the incumbents. But I think like, to me at a larger level, I, I still can't believe we're back here where Again, rather Gary Marcus, I thought was a very good inclusion into this this conversation because he's someone who's been deep in the space, you know, like a visionary in it, a successful entrepreneur in it, selling a company to Uber that was a machine learning company. Like, and so at least having that as a counterpoint, him as a counterpoint was really good. But there's still this, even in that same that New York Times piece, I still can't get over like how we talk about the author had written the appearance of Mr. Altman, a 38 year old Stanford university dropout was as christening as the leading figure in AI, the boyish looking that Mr. Also Altman so weird traded in his usual pullover sweater and jeans for a blue suit and tie for the three hour hearing. Like, like, like Sammy well, someone writing up a and book put there. on a seat. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like, tell me it's what so happened strange. and get to the facts. Yeah. yeah. But there's still this, he and maybe he has a, his PR has been genius. He has established this like cult like figure of thoughtful wanting to help. Whereas in reality, again, OpenAI has just been has been just as aggressive as anyone else, if not more so, in the space. So yeah, I still feel there's a lot of other members of civic society that need to be brought into this conversation rather than the people who stand to poise to to profit the most, even though he I guess he does not stand to profit the most. Right. And it's not, also so I have no profit. idea what's going on. Yeah, and the company, I mean, it started out as like a real nonprofit, but now it's cat profit. So, oh man, I don't know. It's a very interesting may question. May maybe, here's my here's my pro wrestling uh, uh, hope for this is out of nowhere, Elon pulls out some like amazing early days of open AI drama in the next few weeks. And we find out more about this story and things oh, that yeah. don't quite make sense around equity and pay. That's my you know hope. that's coming. Yeah, that would yeah. be great. And uh, look, Sam, if you're listening, come on the show. I want to, would love to talk to you about this stuff. Um, I've been trying to get someone from OpenAI. I don't know. Maybe they think the show is too skeptical of them. But anyway, I'm not going to change what what we do here uh, to land interviews. So I'm just going to. I'm not. There. I, I, but I, I I am not skeptical of OpenAI the technology at all. I think they're like they are best positioned to win in this space. I think mm -hmm. like what they've done is incredible. It's just this on the regulatory side. I don't think they're the ones who should be leading the conversation. No, no doubt. I, I, I think just talking about a PR standpoint, I mean, you mentioned that the PR has been genius. I think sometimes when companies don't want certain questions asked, they'll steer their executives to certain places where those those questions won't be asked. Okay. Let's take a break. We're here with Ron John Roy of Margins. You can get it at readmargins.com. Great newsletter on Substack. We break down the news here every week on Friday, and then we have our flagship interview on Wednesday. Um, if you're listening on the feed, we do these live on LinkedIn, so you can join us Fridays. Typically, we record 
at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. You can check my LinkedIn page, Alex Kantrowitz, for uh, weekly updates on when those conversations will be. Sometimes we bring in guests today, one-on-one. All right, if you're a, a longtime listener of the show and you can rate us, five stars would go a long way on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And if this is your first time here and you want to subscribe, that would be awesome. Again, two shows on the feed every week. When we come back, we're going to talk about the TikTok potential ban in Montana. We'll see if it ever goes effect. And then we'll hand the floor over to Ron John to talk about Xi'an. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Have you been feeling the effects of stress, burnout, or anxiety at work? Workplace culture is changing, but we're not done yet. Listen to the Anxious Achiever podcast to rethink the relationship between your career and your mental health. Hear stories from psychologists, entrepreneurs, even athletes and celebrities. Learn how they balance success and ambition with staying mentally healthy and walk away with practical advice you can implement today. Get The Anxious Achiever wherever you find your podcasts. And we're back here on Big Technology Podcast Friday Edition. Ron John Roy is here with us. Let's talk TikTok. It was banned in Montana this week, but it's a very interesting ban. So effectively, Montana is kind of counting on TikTok to like not make itself available to people in the state. What do you think about this? I like that this conversation is accelerating in terms of like, it's not a ban, but it's a ban. They banned app stores from offering new downloads of TikTok users um, and you can still use a VPN. So it's still a very like, you know, Swiss cheese type of ban here. But I think it's important that these conversations are moving faster and faster. And I think, I don't know, we've talked about this a lot. I think TikTok gets banned this year. I think there's mm. a number of reasons why it will and why it should. Um, but even more important, I think like this is a reminder that it's not going to be in just one all out blanket ban. If it happens, there's going to be legal challenges, different things that happen over time. And then, I don't know, again, my prediction on this is there's going to be a few just gigantic scandals that come out and then which there have already been endless things coming out and dripping and dripping. Um, and that's what pushes pushes it over the the edge. But the question is the, the legality, right? And there's already a lawsuit from creators uh, against Montana to, to, um, to roll this back on free speech grounds. So it seems to me like maybe the most likely thing that's going to happen, and Ro Khanna was here a few weeks saying this, is that it's going to be a... Um, it's going to be a forced sale by this by Cepheus, which investigates the deals that we have when it comes to like foreign uh, companies versus like it just this is going to kind of show the weakness, I think, of the outright ban via legislation path. You don't agree? Yeah, but no, no, no. I, I think forced sale and I've said parts of this before, but I mean, I'll reiterate it here again. There's no way a forced sale happens. And there's a couple of reasons. One, the economics of it, TikTok, I mean, this is one of my favorite parts of this whole idea is like ByteDance 
is another raised a ton of money, had a high valuation. A forced sale of TikTok would require some kind of hard price set around their valuation, around their economics, around the value of TikTok itself. And right now it's so inflated. So if you can imagine the back and forth arguing when it's essentially a forced sale, but obviously ByteDance is going to want to get as much money as possible out of it to try to keep their overall business you know, looking better than it potentially is. And then I, I, there is no way logistically and operationally this actually works. Like, how do you really separate an algorithm? The number of, you know, like connected data points, the number of salespeople, like, do you have to switch out every CRM system and the different pieces of data that are in there for advertisers? There's so much that's commingled, I'm sure, already, or I mean, that that just is that, it, you know, there's no way that you cleanly just slice it off, sell it at a price that both parties agree to. I, I think there's no way that that can happen. Well, the government could just say you have to figure it out. And then like the government has forced sales before. So it's possible that it happens. Yeah, but not at this scale. And with this sensitivity around geopolitics because to me at a certain True. point yeah there there's more value in making the us look like they're going after chinese companies and non-american companies there's much more value for the chinese government in terms of that happening from like an overall i mean whether it's like a geopolitical or a pr perspective than the idea that it's a forced sale and the negotiations that go around it and the operational challenges that go around that. So yeah, I, I'm still calling it here. No forced sale is possible. Let's talk about Xi'an. So they raised $2 billion at a $66 billion valuation, which I thought was the news. But as we introed this show, you've called them the most important tech company or the most important tech story. So floor is yours, Ranjan. What should we be thinking about when it comes to this company and why is it important? All right. So just for, for listeners, I love how before we Ranjan is right now to, to talk about this. <laughs> well, no, no. Before we started the show and I was like, she and uh, Alex said, you know, like, all right, like, let's keep it around. You know, a lot of people might not know of it or it might not, uh, you know, hold interest as much. And also, you're not the first person, Alex, who pronounced it to me shine. And this is a company that is the fastest growing retailer in the world that is overtaken or is neared H&M and Zara in sales. No, no, it's surpassed H&M. Or yeah, sorry, it's surpassed H&M. It's at $23 billion in sales. And that's almost all growth in the last four or five years. It, It is overtaken American retail quietly as a Chinese company. So, I mean, TikTok is headlines, but Shein is actually, you know, quietly taking over American society or, you know, in business just as much. But also what I found interesting was this, was that Shein was valued in their last round at a hundred billion. Their latest $2 billion fundraise was only at 66 billion. I think this is kind of a cool, like interesting tidbit around a 33% valuation cut didn't seem to be the news or cause any mm-hmm. panic. It Not feels anymore. almost like a recognition that previous 2021 valuations were just unreasonable and also starting to position themselves for an eventual IPO that's making exp- in the past the exp- the game was set expectations as high as possible and then hope that the public markets just take, go play along and buy at that value. Now it seems like all right, let's be a little smarter, let's make this at a reasonable so we don't come out 
and then lose value right away and actually show some upside to public market investors. So I thought that was another interesting angle, but an even more interesting angle for me is in a Wall Street Journal's long coverage of this, do you know who was quoted? Tell me. All right, Marcelo, okay, I don't even know, McClure, Clower, the former SoftBank executive who I believe became CEO of WeWork for a little bit, you know, like this is this big name in technology. He is now, he was appointed the head of she, the chairman of she in Latin America a couple of months ago. Um, so he's only chairman of she in Latin America, but now they're kind of positioning him as the figure, the public face of she in, in America. And I think this is where it gets interesting. The way they're playing this is like trying to distance themselves from the Chinese connection, Chinese origins, and seeing how companies like this really are, you know, incorporating geopolitical public relations into all their decision-making into who represents the face of them. Like again, $66 million company, fastest growing retailer in the world. Do you know the name of the CEO? No, I don't even know where to buy their stuff. Okay, I don't even know. Do I actually, I'm stuff? talking about this on Shein.com. It's, uh, it's all online. Yeah, it's all online. They've had a couple of pop-ups, I believe, but they're they're doing collaborations. They launched this thing, Shein X with indie designers. They, they you know, they're getting into culture, retail culture, fashion culture, as much as anyone else. And again, the idea that like H&M hmm. and Zara, their global reach and recognition is just so ingrained in just everyone, right? Now here's a company that's overtaken H&M in sales. And, and you're, again, I've been on like panels with retail folks who pronounced it shine as well. So stop they, making fun they, of me about that. No, I'm, not, I'm just <laughs> I'm saying playing, you're not, you're not the first. You're not the first. <laughs> hey, there's stuff Actually, looks they, amazing. Oh my God, it's so cheap. It's so cheap. Well, so, okay, so this is another reason the story is interesting. What Sheehan essentially did this was- This is amazing. This clothes- Yeah, yeah and, and do, they're do you know- They're cool who, and they're cheap. Who, who's most vulnerable, I think, is Amazon here. Amazon is in a huge potential for disruption because what's happening is what Sheehan and then Timu's another, it was a, another really fast growing Chinese startup that's playing the same game. All the Chinese sellers that from like 2012 to 2019 that Amazon was basically arbitraging, that Amazon was finding cheap Chinese sellers, opening up their marketplace and letting them sell to American consumers. Now Shein has built a marketplace that directly connects us to them, not through Amazon, but we buy from those same manufacturers at a much cheaper price. And also their, their shipping is a little bit slower. It's like, 10 days, two weeks. So the kind of the deal is we're going to give you stuff that is cheap as hell. You'll wait a little longer for it. But, you know, it's especially in this economy, it seems like an unbeatable proposition. I'm going to fill my cart before this podcast is done. Holy moly. This is wild. Wait, Sorry, wait, hold just... on. Do, 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 no, no. do you know about Shein Halls? No. Uh, this is a TikTok trend when you say you're going to fill your cart. Uh, one of the things that really kind of blew them up was people literally buy boxes of stuff and like say like this whole box only cost me $180 and then dump mm. it out and like <laughs> make just this show of gluttony and consumption. And that's the trend. So 
Yeah, serious. Search hashtag Sheehan Hall on uh, and your favorite social media platform, and you'll Look, see what I'm talking about. In ten days to three weeks, if you don't live in Montana, you're gonna see a new video from me on TikTok <laughs> doing exactly <laughs> this. <laughs> wow, this is amazing. So, well, how do you think this does this change the the tech platforms or the retail business in the U.S. at all? Yeah, I, I think Amazon is hugely vulnerable. I think like H&M and Zara, or especially H&M, definitely vulnerable. I think this is the most interesting story in e-commerce and retail that has kind of flown under the radar because, again, their growth is insane. They're, and they've and just how well and successfully they pulled off the ability to, you know, just like make their way into global retail and do it, you know, in a really quiet way, I think is fascinating. I mean, I'm stunned. Like they have wedding dresses for thirty six ninety nine. I mean, that's... I, I don't know who's getting married in a Shein dress, but you could do it. <laughs> you can. All right, we're gonna let's let's. Why don't we put a pin on this and um, let's come back to it on a future episode? We talked about potentially inviting John Herman on from New York Magazine, who's written about Timu, which is another one of these sites. I kind of feel like it merits a full full hour of discussion. But wow. I'm glad we kept it in. You've definitely opened my eyes to this thing. So yeah, maybe was, uh, my my single friend who wears his uh, Apple headset to the date yeah. to marry the girl wearing the Shein dress. Wouldn't that uh, be beautiful? Everyone will beautiful. be happy. Yep. Exactly. How does that relationship not last? Um, well, I'm curious. I actually have a question. Like, let's let me take a moment of self awareness. How do you think I didn't know about this? I mean, it's bigger than H and M. How was I unaware? Like, am I just like is my head in the wrong place or? How do you think I ignored it? In fairness to you, you're not a 22-year-old girl. I mean, I think that's a, <laughs> as a starting I point. I can confirm but, that. Yeah, but I, I mean, no, hold on. This, they have not gotten a ton of coverage. I wrote about them in October, and mm. like that's why I was, I was trying to start to lay out the case that this is a really interesting story. And they still, again, the $2 billion funding only got covered in the Wall Street Journal, who got access to Marcelo Clore. Like, so obviously they wrote about it and they wrote a good long piece around it. Reuters has like a short piece about it. No one else covered that story. $2 billion fundraise in this environment for a Chinese company that's becoming the dominant retailer in the US. And it's nowhere to be found. And I'm always a little hesitant to say, no one is talking about it, but because when in reality, when a lot of journalists are covering things, but this one really is not being covered. Except here on Big Technology Except Podcast. Except on Big Technology. Fun story of the week. Jeff Bezos' $500 million yacht uh, has a sculpture of Lord Sanchez, who's his partner, <laughs> on the front. And she's wearing the symbol for Koru, which symbolizes new life, growth, strength, and peace. And it's a symbol that's special to the couple. I mean, <laughs> Jeff Bezos, man. He's gone from this very unassuming nerd to someone who literally sculpted his partner into the front of his boat. I just thought that that was wild. I, I got to say, if, if we're choosing between world's richest man who's doing better right now, Elon mm -hmm. versus Bezos edition, Dude. 
Bezos. I got to give it to you. Jeff, man. I, it's ridiculous. It's midlife crisis, but he's having a great time I while know. Elon is doing whatever he is doing at Twitter. Well, Jeff is really uh, leaning into it right now. It's interesting because, okay, so first of all, I saw that and I was like, and my immediate reaction was like, there's no way he's ever returning to Amazon. It doesn't matter what happens with the stock price. My second reaction to that was, uh, well, not, no, actually, now that you're bringing this up, like who's in a better, I mean, obviously Bezos is doing the world's richest man thing better, but I also wonder who's going to have like the bigger impact. I mean, Bezos, like, okay, he created, he created Amazon credit for that. Um, but if you think about, and, and he's like, obviously he's held up as a business genius for good reason. But then you think about the other things he's done. He's actually competing with Elon in a few areas. He's got the space satellite stuff. Starlink is the household name there. And he's got the rocket company. SpaceX is the household name there. And, you know, Amazon invested in Rivian big time. Okay. So Tesla is the winner there. I mean, he didn't invest in, he didn't do the whole Twitter thing. So points to Bezos on that front. But I still think you can make an argument that even though Elon's having a worse time of it, he's going to be more impactful than Bezos. I think I agree Bezos in the in the history books will be remembered as just a business leader and nothing more than that where Elon will certainly be a character more with more stories Who pushed and depth than the state of humanity forward. Okay. <laughs> For better or for worse, he will he be did. remembered. Yeah. There'll be more in the history books about mm -hmm. Elon than Jeff. Also, hey, maybe uh, once Sheehan starts eating Amazon's lunch a little bit, Bezos will be called back into the office. And uh, I mean, yeah, Amazon and what's going on over there, that's for a whole other episode, I think. Well, I think that Bezos could also just wear those uh, Sheehan shirts, fun Sheehan shirts to That would music be festivals. a move. <laughs> because they certainly the ones that I've seen on the homepage at least seem to fit his style. All right, Ron John, thanks for joining, man. This was great. This is definitely one of our more fun episodes. So it's nice to go one-on-one -on -one with you, man. Yep. See you next week. Okay. See you next week. Thanks everybody for listening. Uh, thank you, LinkedIn for having me as part of your podcast network. Um, folks, I am going to preview two really fun episodes we have coming up. All right. We have at a conversation with Astro Teller who is the captain of Moonshots, or also better known as the CEO of X at Alphabet. I just interviewed him, and we're gonna talk all about the experimental projects that Google's working on and why its experimental arm didn't produce the chatbots first. And speaking of chatbots, I have a conversation with Jack Krawcheck, who is the senior director on BARD at Google. We get decently into some of the reasons why Google's been slow, although it's kind of tough sometimes to get concrete answers from people um, who are working on these projects directly. All right, that'll do it for us here. We'll see you next time on Big Technology Podcast. <laughs>